You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Uh, tonight's passage is from Joshua 7, verses 1 to 9. Great, that's Joshua 7, verses 1 to 9. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kami, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zariah, the, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Cherubim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello, if you ever met me before, my name is Coy, I'm the Associate Pastor here. And uh, there's something that you likely don't know about me, is that I actually was a purple belt in Fedotion. This is around 15 years ago, and many of you are like, what is Fedotion? It is a form of martial arts, and the belt I have is hardcore. It's the first belt you get. Uh, you get it for learning how to master rolling forwards and rolling backwards. I know, hardcore. You can call me Cobra Koi, right? But, I know, that was a good one. But I remember during uh, one of my lessons while I was there, uh, we were doing a sort of a circuit where there were stations, you'd do different things. So there was a station where you'd be doing blocks. There was a station where you'd be doing punching. There was a station where you'd do kicks. And the sensei had set us goals. And our group were hitting these goals. And we were on a high. We were just like, this is amazing. This is so good. But out of nowhere, the gout on my foot triggered, causing my big toe to swell up. And I was in excruciating pain. Anyone here have gout? No, it's usually for like 60-year-old, 80-year-old men. But somehow I got it when I was 21. But anyway, what happens, my foot swelled up and it so happens that it happened while I was at the kicking station as well. The sensei comes over and asks me, Koi, why have you stopped? And I said, sensei, I have gout, please. I can't kick, please. And he yells out to the group, because Koi can't do 50 kicks, everyone here has to do laps. I was, I know, it's rough. I was so sad. I was that one dude 
who ruined it for everyone. And I was so sad, but also because, like, how was I going to run on a bum foot, right? I run laps. Purple belt, guys. Hardcore. Remember that. But this is essentially what happens in our passage today. You know, coming into Joshua 7, God's people, the Israelites, being led by Joshua, were on an absolute high. They had overtaken Jericho, one of the main cities, in their way, on their mission to take a hold of the land promised to them by God. The, most, the almost impossible walls to break through had fallen down. They had captured the city. Victory was theirs. God had given Jericho into their hands. Joshua had led his people to a famous win. Spirits were high. They knew the almighty Lord was on their side. They could see the long-awaited promise become, uh, like become more of a reality. News was going around that Israel and their powerful God were on their way claiming the land that is rightfully theirs. Things were amazing for God's people. And in the first word of our passage today in chapter 7, but, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. One person ruined it for everybody. But this isn't like some sort of leisurely martial arts class where you're made to run laps. But this is a lot more serious because what we're dealing here, what we're dealing with here is the impact of sin in the face of a holy God. This same God who gave them victory over Jericho, but required that they heed and obey to his every command. It's an eye-opening passage considering leading up until now. All has been so good, but it's in this story of Achan that we see the devastating impact that sin has and how God takes seriously the consequences of disobedience. See, what we're going to see in our passage today is, one, that sin affects more than the sinner, but two, that private sin does not escape consequence, and three, that sin always demands a response. So before that, let's just pray together. Father God, we're just so thankful that we can come together in a city, in a country, that we can worship you freely. Lord God, I pray that you open up my friends' hearts, ears, and minds uh, to hear your wonderful word today. Take away any words of my own and let it be only yours that remain. We thank you, Lord, for this blessing of your wonderful scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the beginning of chapter 7, it tells us that how, it tells us how Achan had taken some of these devoted things, which resulted in the anger of the Lord burning against the people of Israel. Now, to understand the weight of the actions of Achan, we must first understand the significance of what he took. In the previous chapter, in chapter 6, in God, as God's people were charged to capture and claim the city of Jericho as theirs, in chapter 6, verse 17, God had told his people through Joshua, Joshua that the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now, as verse 18 of chapter 6 says, all the Israelites were to keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. What this essentially means is that God 
in promising Joshua to give Jericho into his hands. It means his people were to obey the exact commands given to them by God. They were to take over this city as it will be given to them. But there are things in the city that God had devoted to be destroyed. Things such as silver, gold, bronze, iron, the spoils. These things were deemed as holy to the Lord, described as harem, because the almighty powerful God was the one who promised them victory and is the only one who made it happen. In their victory, there were these things in the city that were to be offered to the Lord. I mean, he was the one who gave them victory. So God's people were to give things over to the Lord in the context of war, often by keeping things in the treasury of the Lord or by destroying them. See, by doing this, this was actually an act of devotion to the Lord. It was setting something aside, setting it apart for the Lord, an act of holiness in front of a holy God. The law in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 28 to 29 describes it well. It says this, But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. If something is dedicated or devoted to the Lord in those times, it is most holy. It is sacred to the Lord. And so understanding this, it makes sense why Achan's taking of such things would anger God so much. It was a direct disobedience. But more than that, because these things were regarded uh, most holy and meant to be devoted to God for destruction, it now means if Achan possesses these things, while residing in Israel's camp, Israel as a nation is now considered a devoted thing, meant for destruction too. It's quite a scary thought, isn't it? Picture it as something that is radioactive, like if you're anywhere near it, let alone possess it, you're affected, you've got it on you, contaminated, contaminated, and it's going to destroy you. See, a theologian Richard Hess describes it. God owned the devoted things in the capture of Jericho. To take God's property is theft. As long as Israel possesses the devoted things, God will consider them as devoted things. He will not win victories for them. Instead, he will guarantee their defeat and destruction. Either Israel must destroy the devoted things that it possesses or it will be destroyed as devoted things. Achan essentially held on to the pagan things and influences that were meant to be given up to the Lord to be destroyed. And so notice in verse 1, it says, The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, even though it was just the actions of one man, Achan. Yet the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Achan's actions his disobedience and sin meant that the entire nation was affected. See, what we can learn from Achan's disobedience is that sin affects more than the sinner. See, all throughout the Old Testament, the community of God's people were often depicted as one body. God viewed the nation of Israel as a unit. So, so for such a grave sin, it made sense that it would impact all of God's people. But while this story in Joshua 7 is unique to Israel then and there, 
It's the same for us today. Sin does affect more than the sinner. Because just as Israel were viewed as a unit to God, just as well, us, the church, are also one. As 1 Corinthians describes us, one body in Christ. That is what we are. We are a community of believers. We are a corporate body and it's a whole assembly. And so just like Achan, what we notice is that sin rarely affects only us but in fact very easily impacts the whole. All it takes is for one or a few believers of a fellowship to pursue selfish desires or sinful agendas to completely impact an entire community of believers negatively. For instance, if a pastor of a church lives the most extreme, lavish lifestyle, the entire church is affected. If a worship leader leads a same-sex relationship, the entire church is affected. If the prayer manager abuses their children, the entire church is affected. If the youth leader sleeps with his girlfriend, the entire church is affected. But it's not only those in leading roles where they have been seen at the front or have care over a select group of people that impacts the whole, but to every one of us sitting here, on the pews right now, our sin doesn't only affect us, but it affects all of us, the church. See, I remember chatting with one of my old Christian friends once, asking her why she hadn't invited one of her close, closest non-Christian friends to church before. And my friend told me that actually she had. But because her friend saw all of our church friends at the same clubs, getting just as wasted and more, taking drugs, taking all sorts of things, the non-believer friend said to my friend, why do I need to go to church when the churchgoers I see do even worse things than me? Now you might think, how does my sin affect the wider body? Have you considered that when you sin, your actions may have brought shame upon the entire church to those looking in? Or when you sin, your actions may have marred the church's call to holiness, to your brothers and sisters. Or when you sin, the good news becomes so hard to hear so people turn away from anything to do with church so your brothers and sisters struggle to share the good news to the same people. What we can see from the story of Achan is that the sin of one member has an effect upon the whole community. As pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul says, if serious sins are not dealt with, They can contaminate the entire church. See, while our faith is indeed an intimate relationship between ourselves and the Lord, God has also called his people today to be a corporate body together. As 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. As Christians, as a collective chosen people of God, it means our actions are never strictly isolated to ourselves. But as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we are representing our Lord to the world around us. And we do that as 
a people, representing his body to the watching world. As writer Jake Hampton Keithley says in regards to Israel in our passage, who were these people and what was their purpose? Israel were a people called of God to be his witness to the world and through whom God would give the Saviour. See, as a whole people, their calling and walk with God was vital. And so sin and its consequences were seen corporately and dealt with severely by God as we're about to see. Now, thinking through all this, I think why so many of us fall into the temptation of thinking that our sin affects nobody but ourselves is because we think that nobody is watching us. So our actions don't really impact anybody, that our actions and sins are are solely a private matter. But that's the thing about sin. It's never a private matter. Sin must be dealt with because nothing is hidden from the watchful eyes of the Lord. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, sin never escapes the God who knows and sees all things. Sin will always affect more than ourselves because sin always affects our holy and good God. Achan and actually all of Israel would see this firsthand. See, while Achan may have thought that he had uh, gotten away with taking the devoted things for himself, hiding it under his tent, thinking he had had fooled everyone, including God, God saw the private sin of Achan and burned with anger. As Galatians chapter 6 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Achan didn't realise that what his private sin did was bring trouble to the rest of his people. That in his hidden sin, the Lord saw and the Lord's anger burned against all of Israel. This leads me to my second point, that private sin does not escape consequence. See, after verse 1 ends with the description of God's anger burning against the people of Israel, in the following verses, we see Joshua send out spies uh, again to the nearby city of Ai to assess what is required as they, as they press further into the land. And this is the time, and this time they return to Joshua and they tell Joshua, Joshua that they should send less men this time. There aren't as many to go up against in Ai, so bring less. You know, you, as it says, not to make the whole people toil up there. Basically, the spies said to Joshua, don't waste your time sending the cavalry. You know, we good. But reading this, we can see a stark difference to the last time the spies went out to scope out Jericho. Where in Joshua chapter 2, verse 24, they returned to Joshua saying, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. But here, there's no mention of the Lord from the spies, but rather an arrogant, complacent, and visibly faith-lacking decision. They feel that after their last victory, their next one is definitely theirs. Seemingly, they trust in their own strength and wisdom rather than the Lord's, as they don't seek the Lord's counsel in any way. And so what happens? A smaller group of Israelites go up to the city of Ai, but they lose the battle. Being chased out of the city as 36 men were killed. 
Their folly in trusting their own judgment rather than the Lord's meant a loss of lives and their first defeat. And notice the language used in verse 5 of our passage. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. This is the same description used of what would happen to the Canaanites earlier in Jericho against God's people. But here it's used to describe the feelings of God's people, of Israel, a direct switching of place in regards to anguish and pain that came in defeat. So you can see the errors of Joshua and his people in this instance. They had underestimated the enemies in Ai. They had overestimated their own strength in their army and they had taken the Lord for granted, not going to him for guidance, but trusting their own wisdom. But perhaps most importantly, another error that is made more clearer further down the passage, perhaps their greatest error, is that Israel were ignorant to the sin of Achan. Now, how does Achan's sin play a part in their defeat in Ai? See, a little later on in chapter 7, verse 11, God will tell Joshua that Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Because Achan had stolen some of the devoted things, lied about it, kept it under his tent, not telling anyone about it. God tells Joshua that all his people of Israel will not stand victorious in the face of any enemies. As they hold on to the devoted things meant for destruction, so Israel too meant for destruction, is meant for destruction while in possession of these things. With God sending ending with some of the strongest words that we'll hear, that he will be with them no more while they hold such things. See, what we're seeing is that private sin does not escape consequence. While Achan thought that he had gotten away with it, he in fact has brought greater consequences to his entire people. God has turned his back on his people for Achan's deliberate disobedience and will keep his back turned as long as this sin remains unchecked and unaccounted for. So the defeat at I was a clear consequence from the Lord's hand not being with his people. Achan's private sin had a price to pay and it was paid for by the lives of 36 Israelite men in battle and potentially more lives if this sin was not dealt with. As Keith Lee says, while Achan sinned and it remained undealt with, the blessing and strength of God was halted and the nation was met with discipline and failure. And I think what this does is reveal something about God and reveal something about sin. Firstly, it reveals that God is a just God. See, while God has in time chosen the nation of Israel to be his people, a people who would forward his mission, his glory, his light into the darkness of the sinful world, God's people were not immune to the same treatment of those who live in sin and hostility towards the Lord. Think, imagine God had told the Israelites that he would give them victory over Jericho, 
but in turn, they need to obey his commands and heed to his instructions. Yet one of God's people doesn't do that and steals something for himself. And God, imagine God brushes it off and says, actually, that's okay. Look, I fulfilled my promise to you. I gave Jericho to you. You didn't fulfill your, your end. All good. You can just live how you want. Now imagine God reacted that way. There would be so many things wrong with how God would react in that way, wouldn't it be? Like if God reacted that way, God could then be questioned on whether he really is holy as to let disobedience against him off so carefree. You could also then question whether God is truly just because he would be blindly favouring a people even if they live just like those that live in hostility and are enemies of the Lord. You could justify that God is a liar, saying that people should obey him, otherwise they will suffer his consequences, yet he doesn't uphold what he says. You could ask if God even cares about sin as to let it off without any reprimand or consequence, undermining who he is as the almighty good God. But because we see in our story that God does indeed bring about consequences to Achan and Israel's sin, we can be sure that he is all those things, that he is holy, that he is just, that he is truth, that he is good. A scholar, David M. writes, David M. Howard writes, this passage shows that God is not open to the charge of a double standard with reference to his treatment of Israel and the Canaanites. Earlier, he had ordered Israel to exterminate the Canaanites because of their sin, but now he also held all Israel responsible for the sin of one man. The overriding concern in all such episodes was his demand for holiness and obedience and the concern for purity of worship. We can see why one man's actions had such a devastating effect on the entire nation because of this one act of disobedience. In God's eyes, the entire camp is deemed unclean and meant for destruction until the matter had been settled. It reveals God's character and nature as one who is truly righteous and one who is truly holy. And it reveals that our God is not one who cannot and does not cozy up to sin. Psalm 5 verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So it makes sense and it's true and it's actually good of God's nature that he warns Israel that he would no longer be with them if they remain in such serious sin. But Israel's defeat to I also reveals to us something about sin. That sin leads to great consequences, especially private sin, such as the case of Achan. Now, speaking from our passage doesn't mean that God could turn his back on us, his people, today from our sin. As I said earlier, the story here of the Israelites was quite unique to them. Being a people who God would speak to explicitly with, the, with about being with them and giving them victories, also telling them that he could withhold his blessing from them if they disobey. But while unique, I think for us today, there is an element that God does withhold himself from us when we remain in hidden sin. I'm reminded of the proverb, in Proverbs 29 verse 1, which says, 
He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. When we remain in sin and we leave it unchecked, unaccounted for, when we are unrepentant, I think our hearts naturally become colder to the Lord and he withholds himself from us. It's like what the great Reverend Billy Graham said once, if we delay, our hearts can grow harder and more resistant toward God until we no longer hear his voice calling us. I think like Achan, when we leave serious private sin in our lives, what we'll see is greater consequences will arise from it. For example, think of pornography. While private and away from other people, it doesn't escape great consequence because if left unchecked, it begins to shape how you view the opposite sex, distorting brothers and sisters into self-gratifying objects rather than fellow image bearers. Our hearts grow colder to God. Or think of financial greed. While it may be less noticeable on the outside and kept more privately inside with things around your house, your comforts, your luxuries, it doesn't escape great consequence because if left unchecked, it becomes your idol. You put your entire identity into your wealth and materials. Fearful of losing it means you've lost everything in your life, thinking about it as something that you've earned rather than what God has given you. Your heart grows colder to God. Or think of having secret thoughts and judgments against somebody in your life while they, they may not know themselves, but rather it's hidden and private inside you. It doesn't escape great consequence because if left unchecked, it can grow from a dislike to an outright hatred where you harbour bitterness toward them. You can't imagine living, or you can't imagine loving them in any capacity. Your heart grows colder to God. Or think of prayerlessness or a lack of being in God's word where nobody knows that you actually don't pray in private or you don't spend any time in the word in private. It doesn't escape great consequence because if left unchecked, you no longer see God as your Lord, but he becomes nothing more than a thoughtless second thought. Your heart grows colder to God. See, while Achan's private sin resulted in a greater consequence as God withheld himself from his people, when we remain in our private sin, we too suffer greater consequences as we stew in more sin, more disobedience, and what happens is we grow in resistance to God. That if left unchecked for long enough, our hearts become so cold to him that we no longer know him, we no longer hear him as he leaves us in our rebellion. Hebrews 10 verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. By remaining in our private sin, just like Achan and Israel, we put a barrier between us and our God. See, what Joshua 7 helps us see is just how holy and righteous God is and just how serious and deadly sin is when we leave it. As seen with Achan, 
even if the sin is private, God sees and the sin must be dealt with. See, after their defeat to Ai, Joshua understandably was upset. Remember, nobody knew of what Achan had done but God. And so as we continue, what we'll see is a reaction from both Joshua and Achan, which leads me to my last point, that sin always demands a response. See, just yesterday, I had a big day planned with my two-year-old son, Elijah. It's just going to be me and him for a whole day. I told him that we were going to go shopping. And he was very excited about that. But I also added when I was talking to him, I was like, but before we go on shopping, we're actually going to go to a men's discipleship group at uh, my friend Stefano's house. Is that okay, Elijah? Obviously, when me and him, when me and Elijah got there at the steps, he started crying when we were at Stefano's house because he thought that we were going shopping, which makes sense because that's the only word he understood in the whole conversation. Um, but he was dismayed. Like he couldn't, he felt like I didn't carry through with what I said, which is fair. Right? I, was, I, was, I kept trying to reassure him, no, you know, men's discipleship, Stefano's house. He would have been like, who is discipleship? What is a Stefano? You know, like it's just, he's just like shopping. He was dismayed. I had let him down, it feels. See, understandably for Joshua, after the defeat in Ai, he was shell-shocked. As you read in verses 6 to 9, Joshua tore his clothes in dismay, falling to the ground on his face before the ark of God for a whole day. He cries out to God asking, why have you brought us over the Jordan at all only to destroy us? It's a very real and raw response. Joshua verbalizes his complaints to the Lord. He thinks that God isn't carrying through with his promise. But while his response is like this, What's good about it, actually what's great about it, is that Joshua, notice that Joshua brings it completely to the Lord. And so it's the Lord who also responds to Joshua. Where in verses 10 to 15, God tells Joshua, get up, arise. Why fall on your face in despair? The defeat of I happened because Israel has unresolved sin in its camp. Devoted things were taken from me, God tells Joshua. So get up and consecrate yourselves. Basically, be pure and holy for tomorrow. Gather the tribes, gather the clans, gather the families, gather the people, and I will show you whose sin brought this upon you. And so Joshua rises up early the next morning, which is so awesome. A side note that Joshua is so great because all throughout his book, he often rises up early because he's eager to obey and be faithful to the Lord. And just as God has commanded Joshua, he, com- he gathered all the clans and all the tribes and all the families and people. And God would reveal to Joshua and all of Israel that Achan is the one who had sinned greatly. Where in verses 19 to 20, it says, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Now sin always demands a response. And it's in our passage that we actually see two different responses, one from Joshua and one from Achan. Now look at Joshua. After suffering a a defeat, being at a low point in his life, he brings his despair to the Lord. And while he may not have said the perfectly right words to God, I think he still did the right thing in going first to God. 
and laying it all out there before him. And it was there that God revealed to him that there was unresolved sin that was the forefront of the problem. And how did Joshua respond? He rose up early. He obeyed the Lord's command faithfully. He did everything the Lord had told him and more. See, Joshua responded to the sin of Israel with faithfulness and obedience. He wanted this unresolved sin to be dealt with directly and immediately. He wanted no part of this hidden sin to remain with his people. He wanted to please the Lord. Now look at Achan's response. He's only mentioned up until the last second of all that Joshua had done in obeying what God had asked of him, with God revealing to Joshua that it was Achan who was hiding his sin. Achan stands in front of Joshua as Joshua tells him to confess. And Achan shares in detail what he did, how he had stolen these devoted things uh, meant for the destruction from the Lord and hid it with his family under the tent. But while Achan does confess to his actions, notice that Achan only does this because he has been found out. He explains it at the last second only because he is prompted by Joshua. Nowhere in our passage do we see Achan show any remorse, any renunciation of the sin. Achan's confession, while honest, was too late and it came about from discovery. Essentially, he was busted. In the entire chapter 7 narrative, Achan does not repent from his sin of his sin. He does, he does not bring his sin to the Lord, admitting his guilt and wanting to turn away from it to be restored to the Lord. The most we get from him is an admission of guilt that was wrung out of him. See, the difference in response from Joshua and Achan is that one of them brought it all to the Lord, was in despair and sought the Lord and his help. And it wasn't even his own sin. And yet he still took it and wanted to be rid of it because he wanted to obey the Lord. That was Joshua's response. Well, on the other one, the other hand, the other response from Achan, he would not even show any remorse, no repentance or genuine change, uh, a genuine change to want to be restored to the Lord, leading to, as the chapter ends, with Achan and his family, who were also likely accomplices, being wiped out from the face of the earth. A serious consequence for a serious sin left unchecked and unrepented from. When God revealed to Joshua that there was unrepentant sin residing in their camp, it was actually quite a sign. It was actually quite a sign of grace from God. Because what he did was he actually warned Israel rather than immediately act. As theologian Hess puts it, God did not seek to destroy the nation, but to warn it of the problem that rendered it impotent. Either Israel must destroy the devoted things that it possesses, or it will be destroyed as devoted things. And this says a lot about sin, especially private sin. Because God gives warning to all of us that if we don't be rid of sin in our lives, it will destroy us. Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death. See, in this story of Achan's sin, God can be easily depicted as one who is wrathful 
and judging, which he is in regard to sin, in contrast with his holiness. But his wonderful word, his wonderful word, the Bible, also tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that our Lord is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but for us to come to repentance. Our Lord is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but for us to come to repentance. Had Achan anywhere in the narrative wholeheartedly come to the Lord for forgiveness, repented from his sin, seeking to turn from his ways and throw himself at the mercy of God, God's character consistent with his word would have been one of forgiveness and restoration. Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. As seen all throughout scripture, this God that the Israelites worshipped, this God that we worship today is one who is so full of grace. And we can be sure of this. Because while our passage has described how one man could destroy an entire people with his disobedience, it all pointed forward to the one man who would save an entire people by his perfect obedience. How do we know that this God in Joshua 7 is patient with us and so full of grace? Because a few centuries after Achan, God would send his only son, Jesus, down into the mess of this world to be the saviour of our sins. In Jesus, we saw sin affect more than the sinner as God in the flesh, Jesus, in his perfect righteousness and holiness, took on humanity's sin upon that cross, being crucified, died and was buried for sin that was never even his. In Jesus, we saw how sin does not escape consequence because as in dying on that cross, Jesus bore the wrath, the, the, the judgment and the spiritual death for our transgressions, being separated from the Father, dying and taking it on in our place. In Jesus, we see that our sin demands a response that in Jesus dying on the cross and being raised to life three days later, Jesus has defeated sin and its hold on the sinner. That by Jesus giving his life for sinners, we can be spared the wrath and the death meant for us, but have life anew in Jesus for eternity. So how do we respond? I just love the account of Jesus' death from the Gospel of Luke where hanging beside Jesus on two separate crosses are two criminals who actually deserve to be hanging there. And as one criminal mocks Jesus on the cross, the other rebukes him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus replies, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here was a man who in his last moments came to Jesus in genuine repentance, knowing that he is indeed a sinner deserving of wrath 
yet he knows and believes of the wonderful grace and love and forgiveness of Jesus, his saviour. As Joshua 7 shows us, God is gravely serious about sin. But as Jesus shows us, God is even more gracious in his forgiveness. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So we respond in repentance. But I actually think there's also something else. So you have to wonder why Achan did what he did. Like as Pastor Luke said a few weeks ago, Achan was the prime description of somebody who should be the hero in a story, in the story. From the tribe of Judah, an honourable family line, he should have been one of the most faithful men in the camp of Israel. And yet, as Luke shared a few weeks back, Achan was such a contrast to who actually was a hero in the book of Joshua. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who held, or who held the spies away from danger and played a pivotal role in Israel's victory over Jericho. Two people who most would think should have had their stories, would have had their stories switched. Yet what was it about these two that differed? Well, as Achan stole from the Lord, coveting the spoils of the treasury, you could see that that is what Achan truly treasured. Yet with Rahab, who risked her very life, her very own life to help God's people, you could see that the Lord was her supreme treasure. Achan's treasure led to him being utterly destroyed while Rahab's led her to being received into the joy and the people and the blessing of the Lord. So church, as we live our lives in the face of the temptations of the world and our constant desire to so easily sin, treasure Jesus above all things because it's when we treasure Jesus that sin won't have a hold on us where sin isn't what mainly affects those around us, but it's our faithfulness, where sin isn't kept in private, but the darkness is brought to light, where sin brings brings us to our knees in repentance, knowing full well that our Saviour Jesus has already paid the price. And so he welcomes us into his wonderful love and forgiveness. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God, that in your holiness, you are perfect, righteous, almighty and good, and that you will have no part of sin. Lord, we are sorry for the sins that we so often commit for the sins that are known and the sins that are hidden. Father, you see us and know us and we fall so short of holiness each and every day. Yet in your mercy, we thank you that you are the God who forgives, that we can be sure that when we come to you in repentant hearts, that you truly forgive us. Thank you, Jesus, that by his blood shed for us, we can have a pureness of heart and a newness of life, all by your doing and not our own. May we hold Christ as our treasure, knowing full well that sin does not have a hold on us, but our Saviour Jesus 
has defeated sin's reign over us. Help us to come to you when we fall short. Help us to live in faithfulness and truth. Help us to love you and live for you daily. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.